Dallas Crackalackin' everybody. Money Smart Guy Matt Zapala here, hailing to you from Dallas, Texas, and we have an emergency podcast for you. Bank failures, what to do about it. Listen, my co-host today is Jesse Moon, insurance industry entrepreneur, retired Army First Sergeant, my business partner right here in Dallas, Texas. What's going on, brother? What's going on, coach? We, uh, we uh, have a lot of people contacting us about what's going on with the banks, and so, uh, you know, before we dive into your story, because there's a lot of things that you bring to the table that's about military transition, some of the misconceptions that a lot of military service members have when serving in the military as it relates to money. But before we dive into your story, I want to talk about what's going on here with the banks. Uh, what's some of the blowback you've been getting here? Because you, you're helping clients on a day-to-day basis, helping people with their personal finance. Uh, you're one of the most uh, foremost experts people seeing out there on, on TikTok and in IG Reels on, on educating people about uninterrupted compounding interest accounts. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. so what we're seeing right now, Coach, is um, we call it FUD, fear, uncertainty, doubt. And natural human instinct, we panic. And um, because we don't have that financial knowledge, that financial awareness to know what to do, so my inbox is blowing up. Do we do we take all of our money out of the bank? Like like what do we do? Is what they're yeah. asking. Yeah. So it's constantly messaging people. Stay calm. Right now, just stay calm because it's not like it's a average ordinary mom and pop bank. Yeah. That uh, signature was, uh, or even Silvergate. So mm-hmm. they dealt with more of the the businesses, small businesses, yep. um, community instead of just people like you and I. Just so let's, our- let's take a look at this article. Uh, Jordan, can you put up this article here? So Silicon Valley Bank last week collapses in second biggest U.S. bank failure ever. Largest bank collapse in 15 years since global financial crisis. A couple things to keep in mind here. Uh, regulators took over California-based Silicon Valley Bank on Friday in the second biggest bank failure in history. Um since, since 2008, is the largest, biggest failure since Washington Mutual uh, was uh, absorbed by, uh, by Chase. Yes. And then um, Silicon Valley Bank failed after depositors, mostly technology workers and venture capital bank companies, began withdrawing their money, creating a run on the bank. Now, this is where what you just said. Mostly technology workers and venture capital back companies. So uh, back on us, uh, Jordan. So when we're talking about like Chase and Bank of America and Wells Fargo, it's like you and I just, you know, your common Joe's having mm-hmm. free checking uh, account, right. right? They're putting direct deposits from the job. They might get a car loan. They might get a, you know, a mortgage. You might get a credit card, whatever case may be. Talk to us about real quick, Jesse, what type of customers really Silicon Valley Bank had and, and, and why it's much different than your typical bank? Well, 80% of their customers were... Um, companies they were re- uh, real estate brokerages twenty um, percent of those were crypto that those were the two major banks that were crypto friendly and this the CEO of binance was saying that he highly speculates that they were doing it on purpose to make cryptocurrency fail so but that 's just speculation right so little, but, speculation a little bit of conspiracy <laughs> could it be true could it be true right. Uh, let's take a look at this screen again one more time, Jordan. Silicon Valley Bank was not a small bank by any measure, the 16th largest bank in the U.S., and had approximately $209 billion in total assets and about $175.4 billion in total deposits as of uh, 31 December 2022. Washington Mutual had, had assets of $307 billion when it was shuttered on 25 September 2008, 10 days after Lehman Brothers had failed. So... It's unclear how many of the bank's deposits were above $250,000 insurance limit guaranteed by FDIC. 
But let's go to the next paragraph here. It says, the bank was heavily exposed uh, to the tech industry, and there is little chance of contagion in the banking sector as there was in the months leading up to the Great Recession more than a decade ago. Major banks have sufficient capital to avoid a similar situation. So there's a, there's a fancy word there, contagion. Contagion meaning that this financial meltdown can spill over into other banks, and it can cause a run in the banks with other uh, other guys. So now let's talk about, let's add a million dollars, okay, in the bank. For the layman person that's listening to this, if you have a million dollars in the bank and uh, the bank shut down and you went to go make a withdrawal to get your money out, the bank says, I ain't got your money because <laughs> we're shut down. The regulators shut it down. What, you know, can you explain to everybody here what the FDIC means? Well, FDIC is, we always, we've been taught to go to school, get a job, and open up a bank. And we, we, we believe that the bank is safe because it is FDIC insured yeah. up to $250,000. So if you had a million in the bank, you'd get $250 back. The government would bail them out and give you the two fifty. Anything other than over the two fifty, you lose it. Mm -hmm. So that's why we, I mean... Like we were discussing the other day, how many, how many people actually have a quarter million dollars just sitting in the Chase bank account, right? Just average Joes right. like yourself. So it's FDIC is for protection up to a certain point. So um, uh, let's, let's take a look at, um, I, I want to show here in a second, Jordan. Um, I, I had a document here I want to show you guys based on uh, the companies. Where, where are you here? Uh, bank failures. Okay, let's take a look here. Um, all right, let's take a look at this. So these are the bank, and we put together a document here of bank failures. Okay, let me get rid of that, get rid of that, okay? So, uh, okay. So longest periods between U.S. bank failures since 1933. So here's the history of bank failures, okay? Um, if I can zoom that up some more. Let me get, let me get it out. Uh, is, that, is that better? Okay. So this, the source is FDIC. So you had bank failures in 1953. Then look, look at the gap there. And 10 years after that, look at the long gap between 1962 in 1996, but in, in, in the meantime, 458, 461 days respectively between bank failures. And then 1996, all the way to 2017, 531. And then 2007, right? So all these, uh, mm. the longest uh, uh, extent of bank failures, June 25, 2004 to February 2, 2007, 950 days since previous bank failure, 951 days since previous bank failure. So it's not like it's uncommon for banks to fail. I mean, if you're talking about the 80s savings and loans uh, uh, meltdown, that's another conversation uh, to have it to as well. But here's a couple notes we took. Before this month, the last time a bank backed by FDIC failed was 2023, October 23, 2020, when Almena State Bank closed. Generally, a failure occurs when a bank becomes insolvent, meaning it lacks the funds to cover all of its customers' deposits and the money it owes to others. Bank failures aren't uncommon, uh, before March uh, 2023, only three banks, before March 2023, only three banks had failed since the coronavirus pandemic started. And all three, the Free State Bank, First City Bank of Florida, and Almina State Bank, experienced previous financial problems, uh, according to FDIC. Uh, bank fails happen from time to time, which is why it's important to have your money at an FDIC bank. And as soon as a bank fails, FDIC estimates how much that bank failure will cost the deposit insurance fund uh, and quarterly assessments of FDIC insured banks fund most of the DIF, according to FDIC. I want to show this too as well. List of 
list of the top 10 largest U.S. bank fails sorted by assets. Let me see if I can put this on one, on, on one, one dealio. Let's go to the next screen here. Okay, here. Number one, Washington Mutual. And then you got Silicon Valley Bank. And, then, and we talked about another bank they just failed here this week too as well, Signature Bank. Mm-hmm. So let, let's, let's, stop. Let's, let's go back here real quick, Jordan. Um, so the commonality between Signature uh, Bank and Silicon Valley Bank is, is their clientele. Correct. They had, they had, you, you mentioned crypto, uh, uh, hedge funds, hedge funds uh, really. uh, uh, venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. So big boys. Big boys, you know, big you, players. You, you talk about your whales. You're not talking about you and I, you know, seven figures. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right? So, so can you talk to uh, folks about that again in terms of highlighting? So if people out there thinking they got to panic, why shouldn't they panic? Unless or should they panic? Unless they're a big boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> unless they're yeah. a big boy. So it's, I, I mean, the thing is, is just the average day, ordinary middle-class American walking the street, right now there's, there's no need to panic at all. Uh, it's, these are the big players that are in the market, um, re- real estate brokerages, hedge fund brokerages, um, crypto companies, crypto uh, exchanges, because yeah. they're trading the tether um, as, as a store of value. But us, we have FDIC. If you don't have more than a quarter million in the bank, then you're protected right now. The thing is, is like you were mentioning before, this could potentially create a downward spiral. Yeah. And I think what we need to pay attention to right now is the bond market yep. um, and what, what's going to come to play after this, the banks. This is what created it. I mean, the reason why uh, SVP Bank had failed is because they, they sold a tranche of bonds. Uh, mm-hmm. And since they bought it years ago, uh, it was less than the rate that's being issued by new bonds issued today. And so they had to sell those bonds at a discount, which is right. a loss. And so a lot of the bank depositors and, and these you know, larger institutional guys would understand what that means, or larger company guys would understand what that means. If, hey, we're watching our bank, mm, hey, Joe, uh, let's go get our money out. Maybe we don't tell our buddies, but the word's starting to get out. That's it. That, now they became what they call a run on the bank, which means everybody started withdrawing their deposits. Listen, t- tell your buddies, it says right here that there was 200,000 tweets, 200,000 tweets on Thursday about yeah. getting your money out of the bank. Right. So back in the day with all the other the list of bank runs that you, you showed, they didn't have social media like we have today. So it just heightened it, and this is why it's the fastest bank run and uh, there's ever been. So, so, so let's, let's take a look at this. Um, uh, if we can look here, Jordan, Arizona Senator Mark Kelly reported, reportedly calls for censoring social media companies to rent bank runs. <laughs> He denies it. Right. <laughs> Senator asked about censoring social media during a meeting with the Federal Reserve, FDIC, Treasury Department senators and House members on the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank. Right. And so uh, um, uh, it says here, uh, they, they called to confirm. He was denying it. Jeff got a Zoom meeting with the Fed uh, um, uh, that if they don't censor the tweets, it could lead to the run on the banks. So, you know, when there's a run on the banks, listen, banks need your deposits. Go back to the screen here. Banks need your deposits. Mm-hmm. That's why they offer us free checking account. People think, oh, it's the bank's so cool. No, they're trying to get your money in there because based on their deposits, is based on the, the cumulative overall bank deposit they have that day, they can go out and start lending money using your deposits as, as bank assets. Correct. So, you know, a, a lot of people are misguided on 
you know, uh, banks are just, uh, no, they're not there to make you rich. Correct. Banks are there to make themselves rich. Themselves rich. Yeah. So, and, and that's what we hit on. This, this, this reminds me of pump and dumps and crypto, where we would all go to a, to a, um, like a group me chat, uh-huh. and all we'd have 100,000 members in there and say, at 7 o'clock on this day, we're going to announce a coin, and everybody's going to buy the coin, and then the top <laughs> people start selling off. Yeah. It's pumping up. Matter of fact, let's, let's transition to that uh, a little bit. Um, so you were, you were involved, uh, before I met you, uh, you, you had some experience in crypto. A little bit. Now, now I, I, I believe, I like, for me, I like crypto. I think, uh, you know, listen, I carry a little bit of cash on me, but when's the last time you really need to carry cash? Sure. I just kind of carry cash, cash on me because it's kind of like an old school type of habit. You're a big baller. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, sometimes with valets and, and, mm. and uh, tips for tips. Your, your barbers, whatever the case may be. Yep. And, and so, you know, that's when I like to carry cash. But for, for the most part, you know, I don't carry cash. I don't need to carry cash to pay the bills. I, I just, you know credit card and, mm-hmm. and um, digital pay. But, you know, I like, I like the concept. The reason why crypto was really started was really in 07, 08, 09 when, you know, the crypto space, like, why are we let, letting the central banks do all this craziness? Correct. We should have some form of decentralized currency so the government can't get involved. And that gave birth to uh, the crypto market. For your limited experience in crypto, uh, what was the talks there about, about uh, you either being an investor in crypto uh, you 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 educating people about crypto as a business. What's been your experience with that? Well, everything comes to belief. So when I was first getting out of the military, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, it's I wanted to find a place that I could plant my flag and truly help people. And I saw cryptocurrency uh, as an industry or as as a a niche where mm-hmm. I could actually educate people on on how money works and how money grows. When I first got into to crypto, Bitcoin was $643 a coin. And Damn. We, we were riding it up, <laughs> but, but it was more of the education. $640 a coin for Bitcoin. $640. Bucks a, yeah. so, so, so you could just imagine. So, so I put a severance package from the military into crypto at that time. But uh, it, wow. was, it was interesting. It, it was the FOMO at that time. Not the FUD, but the FOMO, mm-hmm. the, the fear of missing out. Yeah. So people were getting reverse mortgages because we were like, it's about to go to the moon. It's about yeah. to go to a 50000 a 100000 And people were, were doing some, some crazy things, even though we told them, hey, invest at your own risk. Don't put anything in that you're not willing to lose. People, they weren't listening because of fear of missing out. Um, but getting into that industry, it was, it was belief in not necessarily the coin, the Bitcoin or Ethereum. It was belief in blockchain technology mm-hmm. like you said it's everything even even the debit card that's digital yeah so yeah, for sure no, no, nobody's carrying cash so it's digital currency has already been here but the decentralization and the the problem with crypto right now is it's decentralized that's a good thing but it's unregulated that's a bad thing wow, wow, wow. too many too, yeah. too much room for scammers and uh, we're seeing these uh, crypto exchanges disappear with the money but, Coach, when I first got started, it was more of lending platforms. So we were doing not IPOs, but ICOs, initial yeah, coin offerings. Got it. So you get in at a coin, you buy $1,500, $2,000 worth of a coin at $0.06, cent, $0.20. Cent. Next thing you know, once it launched, it's going up 4 5 $6. Yeah. And, and then you sell. Because um, everybody then gets a tweet or everybody gets a message. Everybody's correct. putting their own money into it. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. and it was like, it's like pumping up the value. Did you get a chance to get in? Because it was it was it's like writing a, writing 
it's like the we were shutting down the system because of the bandwidth. We were crashing the servers, and so a lot of people didn't have a chance to buy. Yeah. Um, but then what happened was, as cryptocurrency as or Bitcoin as it was going, we would loan out the coin. So let's say, let's say it was a certain coin. The coin's value was four dollars. Well, we would loan out that coin, and then the value of Bitcoin as it would go up that company could pay out those loans where we would lend it. Mm, and we would just okay. convert it from that coin to Bitcoin. But what happened was Bitcoin went up to $19,800, and then it dropped back down to 3000 So if you had 200000 in loans lended out in that coin, yeah. they couldn't come through on the things. So guess what? They just disappeared overnight. Yeah, what, what, would, you know, what's the, what would you say the underlying motivation for a lot of people getting involved in crypto? Because you know, it's, it's a completely different animal. You, know, you have the people that believe in real estate, you get your people believe in insurance. Get your people believe in stock market. What's the what's the personality of somebody who gets involved in crypto? Control. It, it's people are starting to wake up to realize that they have no control over their money. Um, stock, stock market loses. Their money's trapped inside of a financial plan mm-hmm. where everybody's taught to put their money, and yeah. it's they have that gut feeling like my money's losing. Everything I worked hard for yeah. is disappearing, and there's yeah. nothing I can do. So they're starting to wake up and they're looking for other alternatives that are safer. So, for example, banks, they're, they're centralized. So there's somebody governing the bank and, and it's not just, or it's just one person, but crypto is decentralized. Mm-hmm. So you and me can confirm a transaction in a matter of seconds. Yeah. It's not shut down on Saturdays or Sundays. Mm-hmm. So, it's, for example, let's say uh, you got a coffee right here. Let's say I had a Bitcoin debit card hooked up to my, my exchange, but you had a Bank of America debit card. We go to the same coffee shop, you swipe your, your Bank of America debit card. Yep. Well, what happens? It take, you ever see on your bank statement where it says pending for three days, yeah. right? Because it's gotta go through the clearinghouse, they're gonna take a piece of that pie, and then it's gonna go to somebody. By the time it gets back to that coffee shop, money's already taken out of that transaction. And it takes three days for it to actually process. But if I swipe my Bitcoin card, guess what? Within a matter of seconds, the money, the coffee shop's going to get all of its money within a matter of seconds. Transactions without a, without a middleman. Without a middleman, yeah. you're cutting out the middleman. Yeah, so, I, dude, I like that. I like correct. that. But where would Visa go? Where would Mastercard? Go? Where did Amer- American Express go? They're going to have to figure out a way to pivot and adjust. Where would the banks go? So bank, I, you know, banking. We have, I've always said banking is required, but banks are not. Let's take a look at this bailout recipient. Back in 2008, the, the government gave out something called the Troubled Asset Relief Program, what they call TARP money, mm-hmm. where troubled companies, where, uh, where taxpayer money, your money, had gone into the ongoing bailout of the financial system. This is one like, uh, you know, remember that um, the 1%, the, the, the protests, everybody's with the 1%, you know, people getting mad at billionaires and, and uh, because people have been pissed off. Hey, you're bailing out the auto industry during the financial crisis. You're bailing out the bank industry. What about the common Joe lost their job? Right. What about the common person that lost their house? Because it was a result of the decision because of some guys in some boardrooms in Wall Street or in D.C. or the Federal Reserve are making decisions that affect millions of lives. And they have no say-so in it, but they affect millions of retirement plans and pensions. And people are upset that ta- their own taxpayer money got to bail out the financial system because the financial system could not fail. It was a $700 billion bill. By the way, how small does that sound now to- compared to the... <laughs> I remember in 08 when they were trying to pass an $800 billion stimulus and it got shut down. They said it was too much. Too much. Too much. 
And I, right. I honestly believe that we're about to see a couple more trillion dollars be printed off. Look at that. Which continues to devalue our money increase inflation. So the okay, so nine there's nine hundred ninety one recipients. So these are the financial institutions or the businesses that needed TARP money, troubled asset relief program money, over six hundred thirty five billion dollars in disbursements. <laughs> Look at this. Only three hundred ninety billion returned. Only three hundred so in other words, they got a loan from the government from you and I. Our, our taxpayer money through the government, but still ain't paid it back. Who didn't pay it back? <laughs> General Motors didn't pay it back yet. 11, 11 was it, billion dollar loss? Because they wrote it off, that outstanding. Mm -hmm. Chrysler, we bailed out the General Motors, we bailed out Chrysler, they still haven't paid back $1.2 billion. Mm. Um, who else? Uh, look at Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, uh, Mortgage Assistant Corporation, uh, Cal HFA, Citigroup, Bank of America subsidiaries, including Countrywide, 2.3, not paid off, not paid back yet to the American people. Interesting trend here. First Bank Corporation, which I believe, yeah, it's a bank. Uh, South Financial Group, a bank, 200 million not paid back. Sterling Financial Group, another bank, not paid back. UCBH Holdings Bank, not paid off. Loan for the American people, First Bank's another bank, not paid off. Homeward Residential, Mortgage Services, not paid off. Mid First Bank, again, another mortgage service, Carrington Mortgage Services. U.S. Bank, National Association, Mortgage Servicer, Pacific Capital Bank Corp. Can't, I can go on and on, right? <laughs> All these financial companies have not paid back their loan for the American people in red. Interesting. Okay? But everybody's talking about the insurance industry because AIG. AIG this, AIG, we can't let AIG, American International Group, that insurance corporation to fail. Good, but guess what they did, though? They paid back the American they, people with $5 billion it, dollars of interest. They paid it back, but what's very interesting here is, and I think we need to shine some light and clarity on it, it wasn't their life insurance portion of their, yeah. their business. It was that they over-leveraged themselves on the real estate side because they had a real estate portion. Holding. So it's, it, it wasn't the life insurance. Yep. It was the real estate holding yep. that, that went under. Yep. And so when you're looking at the reputation, let's say I'm having problems with my finances and uh, the Jesse Moon Bank comes in and says me a, a massive public troubled asset relief program for me. <laughs> and I borrow whatever it is. I borrow $10,000 from you. And then you and I are seeing each other at all the meetings. You and I are seeing each other at the gym. You and I are seeing each other at the church. Right? And I ain't paid you back yet. <laughs> what do you think the conversation's like? It's, uh, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable, right? It's, it's going to be awkward, you know, fist, fist bumping, high-fiving, knowing you owe me money. Yeah, I mean, right? And I'm still coming to the parties. Right. I'm still coming to church. I'm still praying praying to God. Yeah, bro, you better pray to God. You pay me back. That's it. But that's what's going on right now with the Trouble Asset Relief Program, even from 2008. So, um, so right now, the, the question is, okay, what do we do? What's the most important thing for us? So number one, not to panic. Stay calm. Stay calm. The sky ain't falling, um, but at the same time, too, I think this might be a good idea if there's not any other life events that are constantly warning you and give you enough red flags to make sure you improve your financial literacy, you improve your financial education, you improve who you're having conversation with and what, what influencers and educators and mentors you have in your life about personal finance, 
you see clients, you know, before I get, jump into the, you know, the four homes of money here in a second, you see clients on a daily basis. You get, you get a lot of people contact you on TikTok. You know, like a lot of people contact you on all the social media, Facebook reels, IG reels. Um, what, what seems to be the commonality between a lot of people that over the year, what, what's some of the consistent common things that people are asking you more information about what you're doing? They're wanting to know how to get more growth on their money than what the, what's in the bank. And that, that's why we, we talk a lot about uninterrupted compound interest. And it, it's just really financial awareness and educating people how money works and how money grows. So uh, I tell people before I take on any clients, I educate them and then I want them to repeat back to me how it works because I need to know that they fully understand it yeah. and comprehend it instead of just moving money to, to, from one place to the other. But the, the, the common factor is from everybody is I want to protect my money. I want to grow my money. And I actually might want to retire someday. <laughs> and I want to make sure there's some money inside of it. So not have to work till I'm dead. That's it. So uh, speaking of that, um, I always say if you want to follow, if you want to be rich one day, you want to be wealthy one day, you got to follow the habits of rich people, of wealthy people, successful people. And so this is, Jordan, uh, let's take a look at this. So this is, the, this is a proxy statement from a publicly traded company called GE. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't know if we can see this too much, but let me see if I can zoom in there. Okay, so these are the, these are the C-suite executives of this, uh, of, of, this is GE, okay? GE uh, General Electric, okay? These are the CEOs. So let's take a look at what they put inside, inside the retirement plans. Inside the retirement plan, they put 94.50 a year. That's the match. Yeah, that's the match. Okay, so they're they're getting paid ninety four fifty, ninety four fifty, ninety four fifty all all the way down. Okay, of course, look at this. I could use the private jet, <laughs> lease cars, financial and tax planning. These guys are using financial and tax planning money to help them with their personal finance. Look how much money they've invested. So you want to find out what rich people do? Find out where to put their money. They're asking five thousand three hundred for financial and tax planning. Mm. Um, uh, I, I would assume reimbursements or credits to. Uh, uh, people in a corner. So pay- imagine paying somebody twenty four thousand dollars for financial and tax planning for your financial estate. Who's who's that? That is uh, uh, Bornstein. Bornstein. That's one of their board members. Comstock uh, has twenty thousand six hundred dollars yeah. in financial and tax planning. Fifteen thousand one twenty five. There's three others that don't pay anything. Maybe that may have their own hookup, whatever. But you know, let's say a rice has fifteen thousand one hundred twenty five dollars being paid for financial and tax planning. So therefore, they can be they're up not to speed. They're not using TurboTax. <laughs> they're just not using uh, Google and YouTube, right? Or, or simply just listen to podcasts. They're actually investing in themselves. What is it? H and R Block at Walmart, right? But I thought this was pretty funny. Uh, One million dollars in relocation benefits. One million dollars in relocation. Okay, I get it. All right, but take a look at this though. Life insurance premiums: one hundred thirty-six thousand four fifty-six, sixty-two thousand two twenty-seven, two twenty-six. 107000 $153,000, $172,000 going to life insurance premiums. But Jesse, that's why I don't buy life insurance because it's so expensive. <laughs> what's the misunderstanding when people see this type of number? You know, what's interesting, coaches, if you look at this, that ninety four fifty, that's the match. And they, they shape they shape us and they say, uh, put, up, put, up, put up to the match and... Uh, at a minimum, in terms of like your four hundred, because it's free money. Yeah. However, if we look at it, it's it's really not free. 
because all that company is doing, because every dollar that company matches that person dollar for dollar, that employer is taking it as a tax deduction that tax year. So what they're essentially, what they're doing is they're shifting the income tax liability away from them and onto you. You're going to have to pay taxes on the money 20 years from now. Now, do you feel taxes are going up or going down in the future? Then what they do, so that's a win for the company because it's tax deductible to the company every dollar. But here's the other cool thing. That, that, those hundreds of thousands of dollars they're putting in life insurance, mm-hmm. it's also tax-free to the company and it's or tax-deductible to the company and tax-free to the employee because of the type of life insurance it is. It's not your ordinary term life insurance. It's not the stuff you get online? It's not whole life insurance. It's your permanent, your permanent it's, it's universal it's, life, yeah. It's universal life, life insurance, insurance called an executive bonus plan. So when people are, are looking at this, it's not, I'm trying to get the least amount of premium for the most amount of death benefit. No, this is a, ta- this is a financial and tax strategy legally in the tax code that they're taking advantage of. Correct, yeah, because there's three tax codes that every, I think they're the three, I mean, I may be a little biased, but they're the three Jordan. strongest tax codes in the U.S. tax codes. Yep. Is 72E, mm-hmm. which is you can put your money inside of life insurance tax-free. Yep. 7702 says you can access your money tax-free. Yep. And Section 101A says that you can transfer your money to a beneficiary upon your passing tax-free. That's it. And, and oftentimes people think that life insurance is just for dying. So uh, I, I want to show here another article here. Um, let's see, where is it? Uh, banks. Speaking of banks, okay? Bank-owned life insurance. Bank owns, so in other words, banks, corp, uh, bank, the institution actually owns life insurance. It's called Boley. Bank-owned life insurance continues to be a popular investment choice for a variety of banks as of December 31st, 2020. 3,137 banks nationwide reported, not death benefit, but cash surrender values on their regulatory fine, filings. 67.6% of banks nationwide with assets between 100 million and 1 billion currently own Boley, bank-owned life insurance. So if you look at these banks, 200, was that, $210 billion in life insurance, cash value, Just, what is uh, some financial expert say on TV, trash value? Well, the trash banks don't value. think so. The banks don't think so. Banks don't think it's <laughs> trash value. So listen, you know, this is how a bank is looking to securitize and minimize their risk to pass on um, uh, interest to their banking customers by ownership, not just in real estate, ownership in you know, debt um, uh, instruments that they're lending you, but also ownership in cash surrender value, cash surrender values, bank-owned life insurance. Um, by the way, any thoughts on, on Boley? It's very interesting. So, so Boley is... I was actually speaking with a person who's a branch manager mm. at a bank the other day. Was it like a community bank, a regional we, we, bank? We, it was, I can't remember the name of the bank. It was community bank. They, they want her to be the regional manager, but she's okay. just the district manager. Um, I was asking, I said, why when I walk in, is everybody senior vice presidents? And it's because they buy life insurance on all the employees of the bank. So that's, that's what Bowley is. It's bank-owned life insurance. Bank-owned life insurance. And you see Coley, corporate-owned life insurance. So corporations do it too as well. Just not not banks. So why why would they? So the question is, well, why? Why would they buy life insurance, permanent life insurance? This is not term insurance. This is permanent insurance, more specifically, not whole life, more specifically, 
universal life, or in some instances, index universal life insurance. Let's take a look. Let's unpack a insurance company asset allocation. Okay, let's get insurance premiums. Let's go 2020 to 2021. Commission fee, negative income, da, 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 revenue. Okay, more importantly, I want you to take a look at this. Okay, this is where the asset allocation here is of this particular insurance company. This is, a, this is not secret information, this is public information. One of the companies we do business with, National Life Group, this is their asset allocation. So where's the majority of the money? Bonds. Bonds. Bonds, not risky investments. Correct. Not crypto, not stocks, not even real, not even real estate. Look. They have commercial real estate. And the commercial real estate is buildings that they own. Yep. Okay? Asset and mortgage-backed securities, private placements. Look at this. Government securities. <laughs> Limited part. Where do you see the risk? Where's the risk here? Where, where's the stocks? Where's, there might be a little bit of risk here if you consider mortgage-backed securities. But it depends on the asset class. Because here's another thing, too, as well. Here's the th uh, one thing to look at, too, is, is uh, banks have what they call, where is it here? Uh, NAIC rated bonds, okay? This is the assets. They have NAIC one through six <coughs> rated bonds. 47% of this insurance company's holdings is an NAIC one. Let's define that. <coughs> the NAIC, let's go back there. Uh, let's see here. Um, where was I? I think it was this one. Oh no, is that one? And and ah no, where I where I just it just came off of it. <coughs> Excuse me. And NAI, the NAIC through its Securities Valuation Office has its own credit rating scale for the insurance industry, running from NAIC one low risk to NAIC six highest risk. All securities and insurance portfolios use these designations as a related factors to assess solvency capital requirements. So basically, the, the, the more risky it is, it's more the higher uh, uh, asset class, the less risky, more predictable one. So 79% of their assets are in any IC1 and two assets. So what they're showing is, hey, your money is safe. safe. That's it. Is, you, see, you see most banks are B, uh, B plus rated. Life insurance companies are A plus rating. That's, 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 that, that's three to four lev more levels of security than your local bank. So when people ask me, do I leave all my money in the bank just sitting there getting less than, less than desired interest? Yeah. Or do I put that money to work for me? Yep. I just point them the number one rule of money is keep it in motion. Because if it's just sitting there, it's dying off. Yeah. And you need your money to make as many babies as possible right now if the government's going to continue to print off trillions of dollars. Before, before I wrap up this portion of our conversation, I, uh, I just want to remind everybody, the reason why people got worried about SVP Bank is because there was a run on the bank. A bunch of depositors, people had bank accounts there, started withdrawing. That's what the run means. They were running their money out. They're withdrawing the money from the bank, depleting the bank's assets, so therefore it exposed the bank to risk. In this case... Regulators shutting down that bank. Now, the flip side is true. If we're talking about, you know, where's my money safe? We have a conversation we have all the time. And I'm not an investment advisor, but I have a rule of thumb. I call it the four homes of money. I want my money where it's liquid. I want my money where it's safe. I want my, my money where it's earning a higher rate of return, beating inflation. And if, number four is 
where it has tax advantages. So we're talking about, well, man, how safe is the, the, the life insurance industry? Well, how do you not have a run in the life insurance industry? <laughs> so if there's a run in the bank, which means what? People are withdrawing money withdrawing from the bank, so money. there's a drain of assets. How do you create a drain of assets to a life insurance company? People got to... M mass murders. People got to die. <laughs> you got to die. Basically, a, a, a major war hits the West Coast, hits the East Coast, where all these people who are in that policy with the insurance companies are now asking for a claim. So basically, a major catastrophe has to happen. War basically has to happen. And the people that go to war have to have insurance policy with that particular insurance company. And what potentially may have exposed the weakness of the life insurance industry in the last three, four years. What was it? What was that situation we just all went through with masks and vaccines and all this stuff, lockdowns and shutdowns, essential, non-essential? The pandemic, COVID. And COVID was a opportunity for the insurance industry to be stress test, to see people dying from COVID. Would they create a run on the life insurance companies? And guess what we found out? It didn't. Did people die? Yes. Did people die with life insurance policies enforced? Yes. But the guess was not created, a run on the life insurance industry. I've been doing this now for 24 years, being in the life insurance industry. And, and, and I can't tell you how confident I am. And, and, and to see me go through the 01.com bubble, the 07, 09 uh, Great Recession, to see us go through the pandemic, the flash crash at the beginning of the pandemic, to just go through now this, pen, this recession that's been not been called a recession, this high inflationary times. And, and so, Jesse... How is the life insurance industry treated two things? You, as an entrepreneur in the insurance industry, and two, more importantly, your clients. My clients can sleep in peace at night right now. I'll tell you that I get messages all the time from, from my clients who, now they came to me out of fear, first and foremost, um, wanting to get educated because this was, I got into the industry 2018, and then we had 2020, the flash crash. March 13, 22 days, market dropped 40%. They lost a couple hundred thousand. And Your family? Yeah, some, yeah. some, some members of my wow. family, but, okay. but, but the majority are, are clients. And they come to me and they say, listen, I work for, for 20, 30 years. I'm tired of losing my money. So now we're able to get them in, truly care about them and, and their financial livelihood for future generations and educate them. Mm -hmm. And now they're able to make an educated decision. Um, so my clients are sleeping in peace tonight, knowing that their money is safe and protected. They can't outlive their money. But as the industry for my family, it's been game changing for my family. It's a, we went from the physical battle of war to now fighting the poverty war. <laughs> and the money that we make here is just a byproduct of the impact that we make in people's lives. So I tell people the more impact we make, the more money we make, the more money, the better our life is, yeah. and the more we can actually do to our community. Because I can't help anybody. Um, getting out of the military, we were living paycheck to paycheck. And I couldn't help anybody. I was just trying to help myself and my family. So, um, Jordan, can we uh, share my screen here real quick? Because we took a picture this last Saturday uh, recognizing you <laughs> and multiple members of our office here in Dallas. Of We do this formation uh, once a month of the highest income earners. Because basically, we feel that the more money you make is the more people you help. Yes. And so, Jesse, last month, that's you and your wife. She's a teacher, master's degree. You have a blended family, and uh, you have uh, uh, sixty-five uh, children. <laughs> <laughs> almost, almost. We got seven, right? So you got a lot of kids, blended family, a lot of kids. 
you made $88,000 last month, man. Yes. You made $88,000 last month serving people and helping people with this particular topic. And the crazy part is during this crisis, during the downturn, during, during COVID, we can go back, uh, uh, Jordan, during this crisis, during COVID, during high inflation rates and, in, and interest rates, a lot of industries are, are reeling. Yep. They're, they're peeling back. But brother, our industry and you in the industry is marching forward. So what's, what's the difference that you're seeing here versus any other career endeavor or business you could potentially started leaving the military? It's, it's confidence in our ability and the actual product. I, I believe that the insurance industry hasn't grown in, what, 50 years because we lack the agents in the industry to actually go spread financial awareness. Mm -hmm. And we're we've been relying on the education system for financial guidance. And we know that's, <laughs> it yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah. So companies like ours, where we recruit, train, and develop new agents in the industry, we're able to get an army of licensed agents flooding the communities with financial knowledge, financial literacy. And we're able to to grow the industry, which has given more confidence to the, to the I guess, citizens, mm -hmm. which is also shedding light on the p true power of life insurance because it's not about death. It's yeah. called life insurance for yeah. the living, not the dying. We got, we got death insurance. That's final expense and burial coverage. <laughs> so, I, um, Jordan, if you don't mind, can I go back to this picture? So the coolest thing about this is just not you finding success, but you got your buddy Mark Cassara there finding success. And what did, what did Mark make last month? Mark made, and his wife made $41,000 $41, last month. In terms of compensation in the Powerful. month, right? And you got Laquan Butler over here who just relocated from Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Laquan here with the uh, red tie, right? Over $12,000 of cash. He's a, a, a former uh, finance manager at the dealership, spending 60, 70 hours uh, a week at the dealership. Now he's got a life. Yep. And he relocated from Jacksonville to Dallas to work together with you. Pro so, pro proximity is everything. Proximity to everything. And that's why we relocated from San Antonio to Dallas yep. to work side by side with you. 100%. So it, it's, it's great to have you guys here. The, the cool thing about that picture is knowing that it's duplicatable. It's, it, it doesn't matter where you came from, what your background is. As long as you're willing to learn a new skill set, learn yep. to be teachable and coachable, and yep. actually put a little effort behind it, uh -huh. you can create like completely change your life. And we were talking last night, it's actually scientifically proven that you can that it only takes one person to change a uh, entire lineage of course transitional character <laughs> go research what transitional character transitional is. character transitional yeah. character we, we got to google that in a second uh, Jesse, what's some of the misconceptions you had about entering the life insurance industry and being an insurance agent did you have any the only thing i know about life insurance was the sgli service <laughs> member group life insurance it paid me if i passed away that's all i knew 400,000 you should 15 bucks a month every week. That's it. That's all you knew. 32 bucks. And it went up every time I would, I would go up a rank, they'd add like 10 bucks to it. <laughs> so I didn't know anything about life insurance. So I got started in the industry based on the opportunity to help other people. And then I figured I'd learn about everything else later. So when you're sitting down with people, what's some of the misconceptions? Now you're educating families. You're educating mm -hmm. families. You're educating people who are also veterans. What are their misconceptions too, misunderstandings and myths that you find yourself commonly uh, addressing and educating them about. You don't know what you don't know, and Will Rogers said it best. He says, it's not what you know that will kill you, it's what you think you know that just ain't so. And it's, 
I knew, hey, when I get out of the military, I got a SGLI. I go to my TAPS class, the, yeah. the military transition. And they said, hey, you can transfer it over to the GLI. I'm like, okay, let's do it. Like, you don't know any better. Yeah. So now that we're able to actually guide people, actually let them know, okay, that's cool. But here's some other th- alternatives. Get educated on all of them and see what best fits you and your family and your needs. So, what's some of the what's some of the uh, because you were you were a army recruit at one point. You're a very good for army t- for twelve years. Uh, a recruiter. So, so what's the difference between recruiting people for the army, recruiting for, for the military, versus them getting out and potentially them recruiting them into an industry that'll handsomely pay them as it's handsomely paid you? Well, me getting out of the military. It came from a couple of different things. Stack of bills piling up, um, having more month than we had money. Uh, you got seven kids. They can eat a lot of food. And as they get older, they eat more. And I told my wife, I said, I'm really good at what I do in the military. I have the awards. I have the accolades. I have the master's degrees. It doesn't matter how much energy I bring. So you got your master's degree while you're in the military. Correct. I got two of them. Nice. Doesn't matter what how. Master's in what? In, uh... Master's in management and an MBA. Nice. So that's nice. probably why I'm so technical, right? <laughs> Good so, job. So it didn't matter how much energy I brought to the military. Mm-hmm. It didn't ha- matter how many hours I put in. I still got paid the same as the guy or guy who showed up late to work, who didn't have any college education. Yeah. And it, it was, to me, it was socialism. And I said, no, every successful person I know, they're either a business owner or an entrepreneur. I got to get out of the military. So... Having 16 years in, people were, you're crazy. Uh, first of all, I'm going, you're crazy for getting out. Yeah, and you're four uh, more years ago to full retirement. Correct. I would have retired this year. No kidding. I would have retired full, this full year. Full pension. Full pension. First for the sergeant, rest of your life. First sergeant, uh, well, because we're on the high five. So 50%. First sergeant base pay is 5100 Okay. Times 50%, I would have made $2,500 per month. Extra part-time. Extra. <laughs> but you said I get a job. That's it. I would have been working at the post office like everybody else. And I told my wife, I said, uh, this isn't the life I want. But here, here was the determining factor. I looked at people with 20 years in, yeah. with 25 years in, with 30 years in. I said, is that the car I want to drive? Is that the house I want to live in? Is that the lifestyle I want? And it wasn't. So I said, if I stay any longer, mm-hmm. I'm just going to get more of what they have. Yeah. And I challenge everybody out there right now that's working a job that may, may feel like they're overworked mm-hmm. and underpaid. Yep. Like, look at the people around you. How long have they been working there? What type of car do they live in or, or drive? What type of house do they live in? Yeah. And is that where you see yourself 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? If not, you got to make some changes. Let's say they want to make some changes. Now, and and let's, let's direct this question and answer to a veteran that's out there that wore a uniform or they're currently wearing a uniform about to get out. Why should they even consider getting involved in the insurance industry? After all, we've been conditioned to be a cop. We've been conditioned to be a firefighter. We're conditioned to be a contractor. We're conditioned to get a job equivalent to our MOS getting out. Mm-hmm. Why consider doing something that's risky being in the business for yourself and in an industry you don't even know about? What's the benefit of me doing that? You're finally going to get paid what you're worth. You're, you're, Remember, money exchanges hands when problems are solved. You're solving problems right now, but they're not your problems. And um, you're getting paid very little, and somebody else is getting paid a lot. Now, have confidence in yourself, your abilities. You spent 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years in the military. You show up every single You wake up at 5 o'clock every day. You go do morning PT. You, you something, shower and shave, and then go to work, right? <laughs> <The> shit. <laughs> yeah, shit. Shower and shave, and then you go to work. And you get off, and then you spend time with your family, and it's like clockwork every single day. Uh, now you're actually going to have a purpose, and it's about living that life of significance, and that's helping other people yeah. uh, truly become the next best version of themselves. So uh, 
on the other side of that fear that you have, because I know you've been used to following the plan, you know, you're just a good worker bee. Uh, they, they give you marching orders and you go and execute. Now imagine doing that for yourself, working 20, 30, 40, 50 hours a week for yourself and building your own legacy. Because you know, it's, it's written in the Bible that our responsibility is to leave an inheritance to our children's yes. children. Yes. And a nine to five job wasn't going to allow me to do that. And I got a lot of kids, which means I'm going to have a lot of grandkids. Yeah. So I need to find something else. You know, the thing I respect most about you, and I think a lot of men and women enlist into the military because their upbringing wasn't perfect. You know, they have a lot of challenges. They have a lot of maybe emotional trauma growing up. And instead of going to college or not having the financial wherewithal to do so to begin with or the family support to go to college or have a life in a trade school afterwards, they end up enlisting into the military. And sure, a lot of those conversations were had by you, you know, as an Army recruiter. Did you find that a lot with a lot of the soldiers you'd end up recruiting, maybe 18, 19, 20-year-old, that a lot of them had some broken homes and, and some trauma that they, you know, like, let's, let's get out of here and let's get you in a uniform and, and serve our country instead? Sure. So it's, I, w- I was the number one Army recruiter for eight years in a row, led the number one Army recruiting company out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, for four of those eight years. But the way I would recruit was different than everybody else. I know that people naturally want to be led. And when they came to the recruiting center, I wasn't the guy, hey, what's up, what's up, what's up? No, if you sit in that seat, you're joining the Army today. <laughs> if, you're not, if you have no intention to join the Army, go sit in any other seat. But if you sit in that seat, you're joining the United States Army. They would sit in that seat. They would get started. But it, So what I would do is I would take out a white piece of paper. This, this was my recruiting interview. Mm-hmm. Take out a white, instead of flipping through the Army I Love Me book, all my certifications, yeah. Yeah, trying yeah. to sell them a dream, I got a white sheet of paper. I walked to the printer, get a white sheet of paper off. I went to Office Max, okay, and they had these colored pencils. One side was red, one side was green, right? So I drew a line down the middle, like a T-chart, right? Yeah. Drew a line down the middle. In red, I wrote your plan. In green, I wrote Army's plan. Yeah. How are you going to pay for college? Their plan. <laughs> How are you going to pay for bills? How are you going to take your girlfriend out on a date? Mm-hmm. How are you going to do this? We're At the end of, when, you, when the date goes good. <laughs> so it was telling them their plan was crap without right. saying your plan's crap. Yeah. Because remember, red means stop. Green means go. Go. So I would write Army's plan. How are you going to pay for college? Uh, we got the Montgomery Jai bill here, $32,000. Yeah. Uh, we got student loan repayment program. Then I said, out of these two... <laughs> if I had a piece of paper, are you ready to join the United States Army here today? They're like, yes. I take them up to the MEPS, yeah. pass the asphalt. That's how I did it. Boom. It's, I was selling them. That like, was a ben Frank, that's a Ben Franklin close. That's what we call the Ben Franklin close, bro. You know, you're educating. Hey, listen, I need a, you, we both know what your options are, what you want to do. Now what? Um, you know, the, the, the thing there, too, is what, what has that meant for you? As, as a uh, person that wore the uniform, to be an entrepreneur, to make the money that you're making, to provide the family the size that you have, to be a hero once again in the eyes of your wife, not that you weren't ever before, but the, the fact that you're more of a provider. You've retired her. The last paycheck she's taken is not from another man or a woman, it's from her husband. She don't have to ask anybody for permission to take a bathroom break anymore. What, what is that intrinsic value? What does it mean that, that you're an entrepreneur, you're setting an example for your children, your wife, as a father, what, what has that meant to you? For, for me, you know how marriage is for sanctification? A lot mm-hmm. of people ask me, so what's your why? Why did you get started? My family's part of it, but it's more about, I believe that by me, because we're all God's children, and I believe that by me taking the time to educate one of God's children on how money works and how money grows, because think about it, 80% of the stress a human being carries with them is financial stress. If I can sit kneecap, kneecap, belly button to belly button and educate you on how money works and how money grows, 
help you relieve 15, 20% of that stress, you're going to be a better man, better husband, better father, better mother, better friend. And that's how we change the world through financial literacy. And I truly feel that. And, and then the money we make, like 88000 I give all the glory and credits to Christ. Amen. There's somebody out there watching that says, Amen. man, if a soldier can yeah. do it, I know I can do it. <laughs> Definitely a, a soldier. If a Marine can do it, <laughs> I know I can do it, right? So, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's just a blessing to, to be able to make this. It's the law of reaping. So it's, um, the more you give out to people, the more you're going to get back. And Zig Ziglar said it best. He said that success happens when opportunity meets preparation. And if you want to become successful, all you have to do is help other people become successful. The more people you help succeed, the more success you're going to have. I say, so all I got to do is help other people? I can do that. Yeah. Right? So that's all it is. And what an honorable way to make money. The way to help yourself is also by first helping others. That's it. So, hey, just before I let you go, brother, because I know we got a meeting tonight, where can more people find information about you and connect with you? Yep, so they can find me at The Real Jesse Moon on Facebook, on uh, Instagram. And the real Jesse Moon. The real Jesse Moon. Jess, J E S S E. J E S S E, not I E. But there's a lot of fake accounts out there. And yeah. guys, be wary because they're, they're messaging us right now. Is this you? Is this you? Is she a you? Yeah, that's right. And, and when you build that relationship with your followers, they know it's yeah. not you. Yeah. So, but the real Jesse Moon on social media. That being said, guys, I love to know your thoughts, your questions, your feedback. You agree with us, you don't agree with us. What's your thoughts here about this, these bank failures? What are you hearing on your side of the world about what to do and how to help yourself and how to help other people. We love to know. Let's curate everybody's assistance here and getting through these weird times that we have in our country. So with that being said, I appreciate my guest here today, Jesse Moon, and shout out to his wife, Cindy Moon, out there. And children at home, appreciate you allowing Pops here to be on the Millionaire Goals podcast. That being said, if you haven't done so already, make sure you hit subscribe, you hit like, you drop your feedback, your comments, your questions in the comment section below. And make sure you share this with those that you love and care about if you feel that this would provide value to them. From Dallas, Texas, I'm your mighty smart guy. And until we meet again, see you tomorrow noon, Central Standard Time. We'll unpack this even further. Until we meet again, continue to live smart. Continue to love smart. And be mighty smart today. Thanks for joining us on this emergency podcast. Bye-bye.